I'd like to address your attention to three very brief passages of Scripture, which will be our focus for this morning. First, the 19th chapter of Exodus. Exodus, the 19th chapter, the first six verses. And this is the chapter that sets up the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of Exodus. But Exodus 19, the first six verses. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Moving over to chapter 20, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, the first two verses of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then the New Testament, 22nd chapter of Matthew, verses 34 to 30, where Jesus addresses the issue of the law. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lives forever. Let's pray. Lord our God, make clear to us now, within each of our hearts, the message we need to hear. Accomplish your purpose, we pray, <clears throat> through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning's context is really all about confrontation. Confrontation between the Israelites and God, confrontation between Israelites and Moses, and confrontation between God and Moses. I wonder how Moses felt standing on that mountain in the midst of that confrontation. What did he feel? What did he experience? We've all been in confrontations. But I have one very vivid memory. Our church in Grand Rapids had a lot of acreage, and so they had built three softball diamonds, and throughout the summer, every night, Monday through Thursday, 
some league, usually church leagues, were playing softball. Now, three of the leagues were independent of us, but one league was run by our church. And for a while, part of my responsibility as staff at the church was to oversee the recreation. So on one particular night, when our league was playing, I went out to see how things were going. And as I approached one diamond, one young fellow, probably late teens, maybe early 20s, decided to be a real jock and started showing off. The umpire had just called a third strike on him, and he was arguing vociferously. The umpire refused to respond in any way whatsoever, so the young man took a step forward, chest-bumped him, and started arguing even louder. So I simply walked out onto the field and told him his behavior was unacceptable, and he was done for the night. And he looked at me, and he said, Who says so? I said, I do. And he says, And who are you? And I said, I'm one of, the pastor of the church, uh, one of the pastors of the church here, and I'm in charge of what happens on these fields, and your behavior is not acceptable, and you're done. End of discussion. He came to me and started to argue, and I said, In fact, you have two minutes to get 100 yards from the field, or your team forfeits. He looked at me and started to argue again, and I said, You now have one minute and 45 seconds before your team forfeits. Though not happy, he left. Now I know some of you are saying, way to go, Curry! And some of you are saying, you actually said that? <laughs> Previous life, okay? That's the way it was. <laughs> the point is this, as much as I didn't like that confrontation, the young man raised a very important question. He said, who says so? In other words, by whose authority? God anticipated that the Israelites might just ask the same kind of question when Moses presented the law to them. So before he presented the law, he wanted to reintroduce himself, to identify himself. He wanted to establish his authority. And if we're going to study the commandments, the ten, we too have a right to know by whose authority. And that's our subject matter for this morning. So let's begin. First of all, the God who gave the commandments is our creator. God began with the fact that he's the creator. He's the owner of the world. He told the Israelites in Exodus 19.5, as we read, that if they obeyed his commands, they would become his treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be special. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, we begin by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Catch the connection? The Creator is our Father. So it's a parent-child relationship. And think about it. Good parents use their authority to love their children, and they do everything they can to provide for them, to protect them, to prepare them for adulthood. They don't give themselves over to somebody else's rules or somebody else's regulations and guidance. They don't give them to the schools. They don't give them to the government. Facebook will probably ban me for that. I'm sorry. But any good parent works to protect their children through the laws and regulations and guidance that they give. So God, our Father, by virtue of being our Creator and our Father, has full responsibility over our welfare and our well-being and therefore has every right to establish Raw laws, rules, and regulations. But the truth is, 
The reality is there is a need for law and order. Without law and order, there's only chaos, and at best, the strong survive. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Repeatedly, we see people doing their own thing, living according to their own desires, and then there's chaos, and then a ruler of God comes, and things become peaceful, and the people do their own things yet again, over and over again. It leads to chaos. We need boundaries and activities in our lives. I mean, think about sports. Can you imagine playing basketball or football or soccer or hockey or pickleball or whatever without any boundaries or rules or guidelines? It simply doesn't work. It makes for chaos. Or think about a busy freeway. Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Six, eight lanes of traffic all going at a high rate of speed down in the same direction. Imagine the chaos if there were no rules and regulations. I mean, what would be there to stop me from slowing down to 25 miles per hour? Or what would stop me from deciding to turn around and head in the other direction? Or I could just simply stop and eat a sandwich or get out and, and take a picture. All these behaviors would be possible if it were not for laws to prevent injury and chaos. Laws are needed to make the freeway system work. In the same way, law maintains order so that we can exist together peacefully. This is why nations have laws, is it not? Take Israel as an example. Israel actually had three types of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Their civil laws were for their nation in particular. It governed them as a nation. It included guidelines for waging war and paying taxes and for land use and regulations for debt, prohibitions against things like like murder and penalties for specific violations. Many of their civil laws may still exist, but they don't apply to us because we live under a different nation, under different laws. And then they had their ceremonial laws. That included things for celebrating religious festivals, for worshiping God in the temple, for guiding the conduct of the priests, for offering sacrifices. Those laws are no longer in effect because they pointed to Jesus. As Colossians 2.17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We're not bound to ceremonial laws, but to Jesus. And then they had the moral law, which is what is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It pertains to the standard for righteousness and contains rules about one's relationship with God and with one another. These laws have not changed and are still binding on us today. They still represent what the Bible calls perfect righteousness. The New Testament teaches, especially in Romans 1, that the law was fulfilled in Jesus. His moral law is written on our conscience. It's in our hearts. And therefore, there's no excuse for breaking the law. I like how J.I. Packer wrote it. Where the law's moral absolutes are not respected, people cease to respect themselves or each other, humanity is deformed, society slides into the killing decadence of mutual exploitation and self-indulgence. I recommend you read Romans 1.18 and following the rest of the first chapter later on today. 
Because Paul wrote there that because people disregard and disobey God's laws, God gives them over. He removes his hand. He gives them up. He lets them suffer the consequences of and the judgment on their sin. And he shows what humanity looks like, and it is utter chaos. God has given us laws to maintain order. But the God who gave the commandments is also our commander. God, by virtue of being who he is, has authority over us. David recognized and understood as a king that God was in charge. After the people had brought an overwhelming offering for the building of the temple, he prayed in 1 Chronicles 29, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. God is the commander. Moses understood who was in charge. He said to the Israelites later on in Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no brides. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. God is the commander. And David and Moses understood God's authority because He had said, I'm in charge. Again, back to Exodus 20, the first verse. The last thing we read before the Ten Commandments appears are, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. And we need to note here that the Hebrew meaning for words, and God spoke all these words, is covenant stipulations. God spoke all these covenant stipulations. The Ten Commandments are part of a covenant God made with His people to make them a special nation. God's laws have a specific purpose. Reading again what we read from Exodus 19. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, out of every nation, you will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine. I can choose whomever I want, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. God gave his laws to make his people special in the eyes of the world. Centuries later, Peter told Christians the same thing. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In other words, God's law shows us our identity. To follow and obey the Ten Commandments is to be caught up in God's great purpose for the world. God's law is intended to make us, His people, special and blessed so that we will be a showcase to the world of who God is. And as we sang so beautifully, God fulfilled His covenant through Jesus Christ. The God who laid down the law, 
The God who requires absolute obedience is the same God who sent His only Son to the cross to die for you and for me. Because Jesus submitted to His commander-in-chief, Paul wrote in Philippians, you've heard it so often, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus a few knees should bow. No, no, no. That every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the commander. He earned His authority. Just before He ascended, He said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Why? Because He earned it. He went to the cross, He died, and He rose again. He conquered death. Therefore, go, He said. And when we obey, our Commander lives up to His end of the covenant and pours out His promised blessings into our lives. The God who is our Commander gave the commands so we can experience the fullness of of His richness and blessings. The God who is our Creator, Father, our Commander, is also our Carrier. Again, back to Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Remember all the plagues? And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Miraculously, Tenderly, God carried His beloved people in His arms like a mother eagle carries her eaglets on her wings until they can fly on their own. And then to be sure they got the message, it's repeated again in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, all these covenant stipulations. I am the Lord your God, who, by the way, brought you out of the land of slavery. The God who creates and commands is the God who carries us. The Ten Commandments are commandments of love. Law and love are not enemies. They're allies. Law needs love. Love needs law. As J.I. Packer pointed out, law needs love as its driving force or we become cold-hearted Pharisees. And love needs law as its eyes because love by itself is blind and chaotic and has no boundaries. So God gives laws, as John prayed, for our protection. When I get in the car, I buckle the seatbelt. It's law. But it's for my protection to prevent injury and death. Back in 1982, which was about the time they were just beginning to pass the laws that babies had to be in infant seats, there was a letter in the Kalamazoo Gazette, a letter to the editor. It read, Dear Editor, I would like to tell your readers how mad I was when I was forced to go out and pay $45 for an infant seat. And to top it off, we couldn't fit everybody in my pickup truck with that big bulky thing. On April 2nd, my wife was forced to go off Highway M120 into a ditch to avoid a collision. That's 55 miles per hour to a dead stop. The back of the child car seat was facing the windshield, as I was told the law required of four-month-old infants. The seat broke off the ashtray, cracked the dashboard, and chipped the windshield. Our baby didn't have a scratch on her. 
I would like to thank God and whoever else is responsible for passing that stupid law. <laughs> in the same way, God's boundaries, when observed, ensure our protection. We need some boundaries. We need some restraints which, which keep us from being destroyed or injured in the path through life. We need someone to say, don't touch the fire, don't run in front of the train, don't go play in the street. It's what protects us and gives us life. Even if we don't understand the why of the law, we obey it for our own good. Psalm 119, verse 93, I will never forget your precepts. Why? For by them you have preserved my life. God, our carrier, is our Redeemer who loves us so much. Again, He sent His only Son to die that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Jesus fulfilled the law for us because He loves us. Yes, God wants us bound to Him because He's our Creator. And yes, He wants us to obey Him because He's our Commander, but not just because He wants to assert His authority in our lives and force us into His will, but because He cares for us and because He loves us. Remember how the prophet Isaiah described Jesus, Isaiah 53? Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. God's loving law provides healing. So God has authority as our Creator, Father, our Commander, our Carrier and is our converter. God's law has some very specific powers. First, the Ten Commandments have the power to convict us. I love the Heidelberg Catechism at this point. Questions 114 and 115. Question 114 asks, if anyone can obey all these commandments perfectly, and the answer is no. Question 115 then asks, why then... Does God have the Ten Commandments preached so strictly since no one can keep them in this life? Fair question. Answer. First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness. Hmm. Robert Phillips wrote of his first college course in chemistry. His first exam came after one week. There were 12 in the class. Six got D's and six failed. The professor said he gave them the test not so he could find out what they knew about chemistry, but so he could talk to them about what they didn't know about chemistry. In the same way, God's law doesn't show us how good we are, but how sinful we are, how far short we are of being righteous like God. The law makes us conscious of our sin. Okay, reality check for a moment. You're driving down the highway. You go around a curve, and all of a sudden you see a state police car with a radar gun in the middle. What's your first reaction? Brakes? Put off the gas? Sex phenomena? Why? Because you're afraid, just afraid that maybe, perhaps, you might be going too fast and you don't want to get caught. 
The police car is an instant judge on your life. And in the same way, the law makes us conscious of and judges our sin. That's what Paul said, Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. If he had known sin, he wouldn't have known grace. If he had known grace, he wouldn't have become a great apostle. And that brings us to a second power of the law. More than just the fact that the law helps us see our sin, the Ten Commandments convert us. Here's what I mean. Donald Gay Barnhouse pointed out the law of God is like a mirror. We look in a mirror and we see that our face is dirty. But then we don't use the mirror to wash our face. The mirror drives us to the soap and water so that we can be clean. The Heidelberg Catechism continues that says the law pushes us to eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins. So the law actually converts us by driving us to Christ. And additionally, Paul says that we seek to live according to the law, then the Holy Spirit will empower us. Romans 8, verses 5 and 9. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind on what the Spirit desires. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. The Heidelberg Catechism concludes its answer about why we strive to keep, to keep the commandments by teaching so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. The law drives us to Jesus who gives us his spirit to sustain us in living and becoming like him. The Spirit enables us to live by the law. The law summarized by Jesus, which we read earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your mind. It's the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here's the point this morning. It is obedience to the commandments that enable us to experience all that God meant life to be. It's significant that in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Ten Commandments are dealt with not under the sin section or the salvation section, but in the service section or the, the grace and the, and the gratitude sections. Why? Because once we know what he has done for us, life opens up and we live the way he designed life to be lived. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 19:11, By them, your laws, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 119, verse 35, Make me walk along the paths of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. 119.45, I pondered the direction of my life, and I turned to follow your statutes. 119.105, Your word is a lamp for my feet a light for my path. Psalm 128, first four verses. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow His ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessings for those who fear Him. Isn't that what you want? 
Jesus said, Matthew 19, 17, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. It hits the news on a regular basis. Someone somewhere gets upset because the Ten Commandments are displayed in a public place. They want them taken down. Meanwhile, another party just as passionately battles even through the court system to keep them right where they are. I mean, why all the fuss? Why do people get so excited and passionate about the Ten Commandments, positively or negatively? Why are some people so offended by them? I suspect that the commandments produce such passion and fuss because merely reading them and knowing the claim that they come from God forces them to make a choice. To choose whether or not God will have authority over their lives. And that brings about great passion. But never forget, Moses, because of a rebellious people, climbed a mountain to meet with God. And God gave him the grace-filled Ten Commandments. But Jesus, too, because of a wandering, rebellious people, climbed a mountain called Calvary. And through it, God provided another act of grace. And how wonderful it is that every time we come to worship, we look up and we see a cross Because it reminds us that we kneel at the foot of that cross and every time we do, we face a choice. We ask ourselves, will I obey? Beginning today and throughout this series in the coming months as we study God's commandments, you must keep choosing whether or not you will obey. And each week, with each commandment, You'll stand at a fork in the road. There are only two choices, yes or no. It can't be both. There is no in-between. Some years ago, I was traveling to California for a midwinter conference. I had just gotten on the plane in Grand Rapids when one of the attendants came down the aisle and stopped by my seat and said, Are you Curry Pickard? My first thought was that there was some emergency in my family or in the church. But then she asked if she could see my tickets, and then I thought, oh man, my reservation agent must have blown it. Finally she said, I'm sorry, but I mistakenly took your ticket for the Chicago to California flight. You'll need it or you'll be stuck in Chicago. I needed to match the intention of my heart with the direction I was headed. Getting the ticket back enabled me to get all the way to California. It saved me from, in a sense, dying in Chicago. It revived my trip, gave me a new life. I share that story because it means the law of God is the ticket back to the way of his blessed life. We need to make a choice to obey or not. So three questions to think about this week. Where in my life do I need to shore up my obedience to God? Where do I need to stop my disobedience? Where do I need to change the attitude of my heart? It comes down to the words of Moses near the end of Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. Now listen. Today I'm giving you a choice between prosperity and disaster, 
between life and death. I have commanded you today to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, laws, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and become a great nation, and the Lord your God will bless you. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land. From here on, it's up to you. The choice is yours. Let's ask God to fill us. Lord God, we're overwhelmed with your grace and mercy with how you've carried us and freed us. We're in awe of your desire to help us live a life filled with your richest blessings through the law that you have given to us. So keep us in the narrow way of Christ, the path that leads to life. Your promises keep us from stumbling. Your love saves us from the pull of lesser things. So help us live humbly, justly, obediently, mercifully before you. Abundant spirit, cheerful giver of life, surround us. Help us stay the course. With open eyes, may we discover greater wonder still as we venture deeper and deeper into your heart. Holy Spirit, do your work within us. Speak to us what each of us needs to hear. And draw us to Jesus even as we pray in his name. Amen.